right. Hey, everybody. Welcome. We are on page 15 in our notebooks. Anybody need a notebook? We have a few. If you do. Page 15. And this is our third week into the New Testament. In the first of three sections of our class, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. Class has these three sections, survey of the Bible, understanding the Bible, applying the Bible. And we're in the first one. I told you early on and several times that the first section takes the longest, the survey. And uh, then after we finish this, in the next couple of weeks, few weeks, then uh, we will go to the second part, understanding the Bible and then applying the Bible. But as we've looked at this survey of the Bible, we've looked at the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And it is pointing to the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah. And the New Testament begins with the the Christ, the Messiah, having come. And the first four books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, are about the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth, the earthly ministry of the Lord. And then he ascends back to heaven from which he came. And he gives instructions to his first followers. And we call those instructions the uh, Great Commission. And we'll see a little bit more about that tonight. But he gives those final instructions, and then he ascends back to the Father. And the fifth book of your New Testament, the book of Acts, covers that, starts with that, his ascension, and then picks up where his ministry left, left off. In fact... Uh, in Acts chapter 1 in verse 1, very first verse, uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says that in my former book, and uh, his former book is the Gospel of Luke, but in my former book, I told you about all that Jesus, and here's what it says, all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that implies that what he began, he's continuing. And in fact, that's what the book of Acts is, the continuance then of the ministry of Jesus, but not with his physical presence, but with the presence of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles who then uh, established the next phase of Christ's ministry in in his world. So we are last week, at the end of last week, today, and perhaps into next week, we'll be looking at the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the first followers of Jesus who are carrying out those final instructions that, that Jesus gave in what we call the Great Commission. So on page 17, Acts chapter 1 and the Ascension, and I mentioned last week, in fact we left off last week with uh, looking at Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 3, Zechariah 14, 3, that says in the, the last day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And in Acts chapter 1, it says it's from the Mount of Olives that he ascended back to heaven. So the place from which he ascended is the place to which he's going to return. And his feet will stand on the the Mount of Olives. But, I pointed out last week, you also have 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, that says that the trumpet call of God will occur and those who uh, are alive and remain will be caught up first and then the dead in Christ shall rise and we will meet the Lord you remember where? In the air. So there's this meeting in the air but there's this return to the earth as well. His feet shall stand. So what is that about? And uh, what that is about is, is what I have on the board up here. That in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, as the prophets uh, prophesied about the one who would come in his ministry, it looked to them for all the world like what God was telling them was going to occur in one coming. That he was going to come and he was going to do all of the things that the Old Testament prophesied. And if you look at the things that the Old Testament uh, prophesied, predicted that he would do, it was very hard to put together how all of that would happen in one coming. And here's why. You take, for example, uh, Isaiah chapter 2 or Isaiah chapter 11. And Isaiah the prophet is predicting that 
the anointed one is going to make war. And he is going to conquer. He's going to be the king. But then you go to that same book, Isaiah 53, and you all are familiar with Isaiah 53, that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and it pleased the Father to, to crush him. And it was for our transgressions and our iniquities that the Lord has laid on upon him. And so he suffers and, and dies in Isaiah 53. So how are you going to put that together? How are you going to be the conquering king on the one hand? You're going to die on the other hand. And uh, I'll go through that a little bit further in a second, but you can see why then it's such a dilemma for the Old Testament prophets. And if you care to jot down 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, and I'll read it for you. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, here's what it says. Concerning this salvation, this is Peter in the New Testament, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. So guys like Isaiah, who spoke of what was to to come, the prophets. They searched intently and with the greatest care. And then it says this, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow So Peter is saying, you know, these Old Testament prophets who predicted these things kind of scratched their heads and tried to figure out, how does this fit together? And notice in verse 11, he gives two categories, the sufferings and the glories. That is, how is he going to be, how is he going to bear our sins and die, Isaiah 53, and at the same time be the glorious conquering conquering king? So they tried to figure that out. And it was a conundrum for them because they thought this was all happening in one in one coming. But when Jesus Jesus comes, I mentioned last week that the first hint that you have that this is going to be in two phases, not one, is in John 14, the night before Jesus dies. And he says to them, Stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are are many rooms. And uh, I go there to prepare a place for you. So that where I am, there you may be also. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, I am going to come and receive you to me. Receive you to myself. So the first hint that you have that you're going to come to me rather than me coming coming to you is the night before Jesus dies. And we know then, subsequent, after the ministry of Jesus and then later revelation in the New Testament, then indeed that it's going to be two comings. His first coming, which has already occurred, and he's ascended back to the Father, but there's going to be a second, second coming. But even the second coming has two phases to it. And you don't you don't know that until you get further along in your in your New Testament. And I mentioned First Thessalonians uh, chapter four that speaks of our being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now the word that's uh, translated uh, caught up, the Greek word that's translated caught up, harpazo. Greek word, uh, that's where you get the idea of a rapture. Because the Latin translation of that is rapture. So we get our English word actually from Latin. uh, But it means to, to snatch away, to catch away. So sometimes people who don't believe in a in a rapture, do you know there are people? Um so sometimes people will say to me, you know, things like, Do you believe in election? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a Bible word. You got to believe in election. Now, if your question is, "What do I believe about election?" That's a different deal. But you have to believe in election if you believe the Bible, because it's it's a Bible word. And sometimes people say, "Do you believe in a rapture?" Well, yeah, you got to believe in a rapture. 
Because the Bible says you're going to be raptured. If you had a Latin Bible, that's what it'd tell you. You're going to be raptured. You're going to be caught away. So again, if the question is, what do you believe about the rapture? Okay, let's talk about that. But the truth is, there's going to be a catching away. That's what, that's what the Bible says. And so the second coming occurs in these two phases. The rapture, but then what we more formally know as the, the second coming, the coming to earth, the establishment of, of the kingdom, and the war of Armageddon, and all of that stuff that you've heard about and maybe get confused about. Uh, but uh, it's these two phases. So in my understanding of the timing that the New Testament lays out, these are seven years apart. That the rapture occurs, and then in between the rapture and the return to, to earth, there's a seven-year period that the Bible calls the seven-year, uh, we call the seven-year tribulation, that Jesus called a time of trouble such as the earth has never seen. Um, that Daniel refers to as the 70th of 77 periods of seven years. And it's the final seven-year period that is yet to be fulfilled. 483 have already been fulfilled. But this last seven awaits to be fulfilled. And the book of Revelation refers to, in Revelation chapter 11, as a period of 40 divided in half, 42 months and 42 months, three and a half years and three and a half years. Or 1,260 days and 1,260 days. Three and a half and three and a half. And why is the seven-year period divided in, in half? Because Daniel predicted that in the middle of that seven years, the Antichrist will bear his fangs and reveal himself for, for who he is and will pour out wrath upon those who are on the earth who have come to, who have come to Christ during that that period. Now we're gone, but there are people who, who come to Christ, and they are they are persecuted. Uh, there was the preaching of the two witnesses that the Book of Revelation talks about. People have come to Christ through their their preaching. So you've got this seven year period, and the rapture, my understanding, occurs uh, prior to the beginning of that seven year tribulation, and that's why uh, I believe actually our church's doctrinal statement uh, says that the Bible teaches a pre tribulation rapture of the church so pre prior to the tribulation the church is is raptured so we may be dead and gone by that time if we're dead and gone don't sweat it um, because first thessalonians 4 says we who are still alive will be caught up but then the dead in christ will will rise uh and uh so we will whether we're, whether we're still alive or we've uh, we, we've passed on, we will we will be raised, and we will be together with the Lord, and then we'll come back with the Lord. So that seven years, seven years later, we come back. But again, don't sweat it because we win. Okay, <laughs> and uh, Christ is leading the uh, the battle. So one guy has said that the theme of the Bible, the entire Bible, could be summed up in two words: God wins. And that's good to remember. That really, uh, everything that the Bible's pointing to is God's on the throne, and ultimately God wins. Where will we be? In heaven? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and then... Then we go to the new earth. Then, that's right. Then there's, uh, there's, well, there's the millennial kingdom. There's a thousand years. Revelation 20. A thousand year reign of Christ on a throne in Jerusalem. And, uh, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth. And that's when we go into the what's called the eternal state. And the Bible ends there. So the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about that. But in the in the millennial kingdom, a thousand years, thus the that's the Latin word for a thousand, millennial. The millennial kingdom, a thousand year kingdom, um, there are people who go into that uh, who um, who were not destroyed, um, but they're in natural bodies. They were not destroyed as Jesus' enemy at the Battle of Armageddon. They were saved during the tribulation, but they don't have glorified bodies. We come back and we've got, we're changed. We've got glorified bodies. 
And then you got these characters who don't. And they have children. And those, those children are born with a sin nature. And over a thousand year period, there are generations of these people. And at the end of the thousand years, the Bible says, if you can believe this, Jesus has been reigning for a thousand years on the throne. And at the end of it, there's a rebellion against him. And he has to he has to stamp out one last rebellion. That during the thousand years, Satan is chained. And at the end, he's loosed for a short period to lead these people in this rebellion against the king on his throne. But of course, he destroys his enemies. And... The thousand-year kingdom ends, and we go into the eternal state. When the Bible talks about the whole world, is it just referring to that Middle East and Europe, or does it mean literally the whole world? In what context? When we talk about the uh, the judgments, uh, all the fighting, yeah. everything seems to be centered in the Middle East. Yeah, and uh, yes. So everybody hear that question? Uh, and in fact, the, the Battle of Armageddon, you know, that's a place you can visit. You can visit now. You know, the Valley of Megiddo, Har-Megiddo, Armageddon. That's a place where that battle will take place. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's taking place there. So that then raises the question, what happens with us over here? I mean, we're gone and have come back. But what about the people over here? And the Bible says nothing about the Western Hemisphere. So people speculated about that. What, you, what, ha, what, what happened to the Western Hemisphere? Uh, you know, the Bible doesn't say. Uh, but people have speculated. So I'm not speculating. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. You know, but I mean like a nuclear war or something that we lose. I mean, that's that's some of the speculation that there's been a destruction of the Western Hemisphere, but Bible doesn't say. Yes. Well, doesn't doesn't the Scripture say that that battle, Armageddon, is like? I mean, it's not even really going to be a war by our understanding of a war because flat out Christ wins. Oh yeah. Oh no! It'll be it'll be. A, I mean, it'll be, be a, more of an annihilation. It'll be an easy victory, yeah. but yeah. it'll be a very bloody battle. You know, the Bible yeah, speaks of blood not. coming up to the you know the horse's, horse's bridle, and so it's a very bloody battle. But the blood's all theirs. Right. So, That's what I meant. Yeah, it's true. So the the point here is that you've got one coming. That's the way they view it. They try to figure out how can all this happen in one coming. Well, the answer is it doesn't. But you don't know until the New Testament that it's going to be two comings. And you don't know until later in the New Testament that it's going to be two phases of the second coming. And you don't even know that the kingdom, which has been prophesied in the Old Testament, and Jesus spoke of the kingdom, parables of the kingdom over and over again. You don't learn that the king how long the kingdom's going to be until you get to the second to the last chapter, third to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 20. And it says it's going to be a thousand years. You don't learn that until you get to the very end. So you know there's going to be a kingdom. It's not until you get to the end that you're told how long it's how long it's going to be. So that's what's called progressive revelation. God progressively revealing his plan. His plan is laid out in the 66 books of the Bible, but those 66 books, as I've been telling you, were written over a 1,500-year period, and God is progressively uh, revealed in those books what was going to happen. So back to page 17 then. You've got the ascension, the ascension from the Mount of, of Olives. And that's where the book of Acts, the fifth book in your New Testament, begins. And Luke, I said, wrote the book of Acts. Now, how do I know Luke wrote it? Here's how. Because the Gospel of Luke that is 
as the other three Gospels, is about the earthly ministry of Jesus. But the Gospel of Luke was addressed to, if you look, if you were to look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 4, Luke says that I set out to give an orderly account of the life and ministry of, of Jesus. And then he says to whom he's addressing this orderly account of all that had happened with Jesus. He says, most excellent Theophilus. He's addressed his gospel, the gospel of Luke, to Theophilus. And we don't know who Theophilus was. We know his name, and we know his name means um, lover of God. Because theos means what? And philos means love. Theophilus is a lover of God. And so he writes to someone named lover of God. This orderly account is the gospel of Luke. And then when you come to the book of Acts, it starts out and says, in my former book, Theophilus, so addressed to the same person. And my former book would be what? The Gospel of Luke. And that's why Luke Acts, and, and sometimes you'll actually read of Luke and Acts referenced that way. It'll be Luke-Acts. Because it's like a part one and a part two. Part one is the earthly ministry of Jesus, and part two then is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus through the Acts of the Apostles. So Acts is written by Luke. Both Luke and Acts are addressed to Theophilus. And then, as I said on Sunday morning, and unfortunately for you guys who were here on Sunday morning during the 9.30 service, um, some of what I said then I'll be saying now. So if you want to take a nap on that portion... Or if you took a nap on the 9.30 page, now you can pick up what you missed. But I said then that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, in Acts 1 and verse 8, Luke picks up where he left off at the end of Luke. In the end of Luke, Luke 24, Luke ends up the same place Matthew did in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. Both of them, at the very end of their, their Gospels, give the final words of Jesus. But each of them give us additional details about those final words so that you put them both together, you have a composite of what Jesus said. And Matthew says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's what Matthew says. And he signs off. That's the end of Matthew. And then you get to Luke 24. And Luke 24, uh, verses 47 to 49, Luke says, Jesus says, yes, this ministry is going to happen to all nations, but he says this, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. So both of them have this worldwide ministry that Jesus is assigning all nations Matthew says it's going to involve baptizing and teaching and Luke tells us it's going to involve preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins but wait in the city Jesus says through Luke uh, per Luke wait in the city until you receive power from on high so that's how Luke ends they go to Jerusalem and they wait and he picks up in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 with where he left off in Luke 24. And he says, before Jesus ascended, he said to the apostles, and this is the way he words it in Acts 1-8, you shall be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, and to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So again, the ends of the earth, this all nations idea. This is going to be a worldwide mission. So he spends several verses at the beginning of Acts chapter 1 kind of helping us pick up where he left left off. 
And where did they leave off? Jesus gives those final instructions, and he gives his final instructions, I will, you hear me say it this way, to his first followers. The disciples, but I've said they were more than disciples, they were apostles. And how many of them are there? Well, there's 11 at this point. Because one of them has committed suicide. One of them has betrayed the Lord, Judas Iscariot. So now the 12 are now the 11. But they're a really select group because you're just known as the 12. And then when one of them's gone, we're just known as the 11. So that's select company when you can just, and the Bible refers to them that way. The 12, the 11. So now it's the 11 when you come to Acts chapter 1. And one of the first orders of business for them is to replace Judas. And in Acts chapter 1, you read about them meeting and conferring to replace Judas. And importantly, they say in uh, verse 22 of Acts chapter 1, that we're going to need to choose someone who was with us the entire time so that this person can be a witness of his resurrection. So we're going to pick somebody, but that somebody has got to be someone who is an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, just like we've been, and a witness to his, his resurrection. And they choose a guy named Matthias to be the 12th. And Matthias is not heard from again. But the important thing about Matthias is that he became one of the 12 because he met the key qualification for an apostle, which is he does not let his cell phone go off (laughs) while the class is going on. I just had to embarrass whoever that was. Is that you, Carolyn? No. <laughs> and Matthias would not lie about it either, Carolyn. Right? <laughs> so, uh, he's, you're, he's not heard from again, but this key qualification is he's seen the risen Christ. And later in your New Testament, you'll have the Apostle Paul. Notice we, we most often refer to him as the Apostle Paul because he's, a, he's become an apostle too. But he refers to himself, Paul does, as an apostle born out of due season. And the reason is because he became a, an apostle different than the other guys did. I mean, you know, they, they, were, they were called by Jesus and he said, come and follow me. And then, you know, there's the, the Matthias episode. But then it's it's much later that Paul is called. And we'll talk about his conversion experience in, in a bit. But he becomes an, an apostle. But how is he qualified to be an apostle? If to be an apostle, you have to see the risen Lord. Yeah. You know, in Acts chapter 9, that we'll see in a little bit, but in Acts chapter 9, Jesus appears to him. He sees the risen Lord. And the Lord says to him in Acts 9, you know, is it, he says, Saul, uh, is it hard for you to kick against the goats? This is hard for you, isn't it? You're going the wrong direction. And in that, Encounter, he says, you are persecuting the church. And he also says, you are persecuting me. That's significant. Because when you persecute the church, you're persecuting the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. And that's what he says to, to Saul. But Saul saw the risen and therefore was qualified to be an apostle. And when he, Paul, later has to defend the fact that he's an apostle. Which, as you read through your New Testament, you will find occasions when he has to defend his ministry. And 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 9, 1. He says, am I not an apostle? And then right after that says, have I not seen the risen Lord? Which is one of the qualifications. Going back to Acts 1 and Matthias. And the answer to those are both, yes, I am an apostle, and yes, I'm an apostle because I've seen the risen Lord. (coughs) So back to Acts chapter 1, they choose Matthias based upon this criteria of being an eyewitness of the events of Jesus' life and having seen the the risen Lord. (coughs) And then you have Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, it begins, as many of you know, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And I mentioned on Sunday that Luke is a guy who, when he wrote the Gospel of Luke and now the book of Acts, he is very uh, precise about time sequence. And so he gets time markers. For example, in Luke chapter 2, at the birth of Jesus, he's giving the account of of Jesus' birth. Matthew gave an account of Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 1, but Luke gives one in Luke chapter 2. And he says that the birth of Jesus happened this way, that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed or that a census should be taken of the entire world for taxation purposes. But then he gives like a parenthesis. And he says, this is the second time this has happened. The one that happened while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So he just wants to make sure you know when this happened. And don't mix it up with another census that had taken place. So this is the one that happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So he gives you these time markers, and you come to Acts chapter 2, and here's a time marker. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. And the only significance to that phrase in Acts 2 and verse 1 is to give you a time marker. That what I'm going to tell you about happened at the time of this feast of Pentecost. And what is that time? Pentecost, 50. And it's a feast from the Old Testament that occurs 50 days after Passover. So we are 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus at Passover. And so what's happened during those 50 days? Well, three of them, he's in the tomb. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, Luke gives you 40 of the other days. That he showed himself alive for 40 days by many convincing proofs. That's what Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 says. So he showed himself alive for a 40-day period. He was in the tomb for three Day of Pentecost is 50 after, so Luke is saying they've been here about a week. And this is 50 days after Jesus died. And they've been gathered in this upper room because Jesus had said, go in the city and wait until you receive power. And they've been waiting for about a week. Now, I said the only significance to pointing out Pentecost is to give that time marker. Another one is to explain why there were so many Jews in Jerusalem at the time from different places. Because that's going to become significant in Acts chapter 2 and what happens there. Because what happens is they were for the first time, there was for the first time this phenomenon of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as they are baptized with the Holy Spirit, the evidence that this power has come upon them that Jesus promised and that they should wait for, the evidence is they begin to speak in tongues. And as you read through Acts chapter 2, 
You have people there, Luke says, Jews there from every nation under heaven. That's what he says. And they hear these guys speaking in their own language. And they ask, how is this, how is this happening? Now we, when we get to part two of our class here on understanding the Bible, we're going to take some time to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that talks about this issue of speaking in tongues. But for now, just understand this from Acts chapter 2. One, this is the first time that that phenomenon has ever taken place in the Bible. And two, the first time it ever happened, it was languages that people understood. As you read Acts chapter 2, and no one disputes this, by the way, so this is not, what I'm saying here is not controversial, that on the day of Pentecost, the languages that were spoken were languages that people there understood. So there wasn't any ecstatic utterance or gibberish that people did not understand. Because their response is, how do we hear them speaking in our own language? That's what it says. So the evidence that the promised spirit has come is that they've spoken in tongues. Now, why that? You know, why why does God choose that as a sign? that the Spirit has come and this is the beginning of the mission. Well, remember to whom the mission is going to go. Both Matthew and Luke say that this is going to be a a worldwide mission. To how many nations? Now, in in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, you have Jews. But there are Jews there from every nation under heaven. And they speak in tongues. And this is the beginning of the mission. I'll remind you of how we know that. That's the beginning of the mission, starting here. But it's the beginning of this mission to to all nations. So that's my understanding as to why God chose that particular phenomenon to signify that this this is the beginning of this worldwide ministry. Speaking in tongues and foreign tongues that people understand. But further, there are going to be, as you read through the remaining chapters of the book of Acts, you're going to find three other Pentecosts, in quotes. They're not on the day of Pentecost, but just the same kind of thing happens. Three more times in the book of Acts. Now, why, why is that? Well, in the first occurrence, in Acts chapter 2... The people who are present in Jerusalem are Jews. And they're all there for a Jewish feast called Pentecost. But then in Acts chapter 8, you have the Holy Spirit come upon a different group of people. And that group of people in Acts chapter 8 are the Samaritans. And remember who the Samaritans are. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus talk briefly about Jesus' encounter in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. And I explained that the Jews hated the Samaritans. So that encounter in John chapter 4 is is interesting because one, Jesus is conversing with this hated Samaritan and publicly he's conversing with a woman. So, But the Samaritans were hated by the Jews because the Samaritans were half-breed Jews. So now the church has started. Who gets in? Remember last week I said that the book of Acts, if you wanted one word to describe the book of Acts, it would be transition. Because it's a transition from one nation to all nations. It's a transition from Israel to the church, from the apostles to the priesthood of believers, from the law to, to grace. So in this transition now, who's who gets to get in? And Jesus says, this is going to be to all nations. Well, what about the Samaritans? Do they get in? I'm not so sure I want to be a part of this. If I'm a Jew, 
if those guys are going to be in here. But sure enough, in Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans receive the Spirit. Now, it does not say in Acts chapter 8 that the Samaritans spoke in tongues. It simply says they were baptized with the Spirit. And the assumption is that they spoke in tongues. Most assume that. I assume that. That's how they knew they had been baptized with the Spirit. But it doesn't explicitly say that. But this phenomenon happens to that group. And then there's a third group that received the Holy Spirit. And it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. And this third group is in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And it's the God-fearers. The God-fearers. Now, when you hear that phrase, that term God-fearer, you might think it's just, you know, how we might use it like, you know, he's a God-fearing person. But the God-fearers were actually a specific group of people. They were Gentiles who observed Jewish customs. They were Gentiles by birth. But they observed Jewish customs. And one of those was a guy named Cornelius. And in Acts chapter 10, the Bible records that the Apostle Peter is sent by the Lord to go to the household of Cornelius and give him the gospel. And he's going to a Gentile household. But it's a it's not just every Gentile house, any kind of Gentile household. It's a Gentile who observes Jewish customs. He's a God-fearer, a devout, some translations say. So that's another category. You've got the Jews are going to be part of this new thing, the church. The Samaritans are going to be part of it. They each have received the baptism of the Spirit. And now in Acts chapter 10, this third category of the God-fearers, Gentiles who observe Jewish customs. And then you got a fourth and final category. And that's your garden variety Gentile. That would be your average pagan Gentile. That would be, say, us. Okay. And that's in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Sure enough, the Gentiles receive the gospel and they are baptized with the spirit and they speak in they speak in tongues so why speaking in tongues in acts chapter 2 and then in acts chapter 8 we assume acts chapter 10 for sure and acts chapter 19 so three times in the book of acts explicitly and a fourth time implicitly you have these what some call four pentecosts in the book of acts And in each of the four, you have a different category of person who are brought into the same body, the church. And that's this transition from one nation to to all nations, from Israel to to the church. So in Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost begins the mission and it begins the church. Now, I went through this, but it's kind of quick on Sundays because we're just sticking the verses up there. And uh, as I say, if you were sleeping, so here it is again. Yikes. Um, How do we know that the mission started in Acts chapter 2? Well, here's how. Remember that the Great Commission is given in at least three places. Actually, at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus gives a version of the Great Commission as well. But three places. The most well-known is in Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And I highlighted on Sunday on the screen when I put it up there, the word baptizing. So just remember that word for a minute. Jesus said the Great Commission is going to involve baptizing. But then Luke's version of the Great Commission says, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached. 
So not only will there be baptizing going on, but there will be this proclamation that will involve repentance and forgiveness of sins. So if you can remember those three things, baptizing and repentance and forgiveness of sins, because all three of those are going to be involved in the Great Commission, say Matthew and Luke. Then you come to Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit comes, and they begin to speak in languages that that they've never learned and that people there understand, and folks are understandably bewildered. And they say, what's going on here? Are these people drunk? That's one of the things they say. And Peter's the guy who stands up to explain. And Peter begins to explain and explains from Acts 2.14 all the way to Acts 2.37. And he explains what's happening. And at the end of his explanation in verse 37 of Acts 2, the Bible says they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they asked, brothers, what shall we do? And in Acts 2.38, here are the three things I ask you to remember. Uh, Peter said, repent. Remember that? And be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent, baptism, and forgiveness of sins. All three in that one verse. Acts 2.38 can't be, that one verse cannot be overestimated in its importance. Because it's got all of these elements right there in one verse. Bringing together what Matthew said, what Luke said, and the beginning of the, the Great Commission. So the mission starts there in Acts chapter 2. But not only does the mission start there, but the church starts there. They both start on the same day, at the same time. And how do I know that the church started there? And here's how. Because, remember, I said that at the day of Pentecost, when they spoke in tongues, that was evidence that this phenomenon of being baptized in the Spirit had occurred. This is the first time that it ever occurred, that people were baptized with the, the Spirit. And what did baptizing with the Spirit do? According to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, says this, We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Now, what is the, what is the body? That's the church. You, you could you could uh, uh, you could translate that we were all baptized by one spirit into one church his body so the baptism of the spirit brings you into the church that's what first Corinthians 12 13 tells us the first time that happened was in Acts chapter 2 now how do we know it was the first time it ever happened here's how glad you asked Because in Acts chapter 1, in verse 5, Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Luke records Jesus as saying, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Spirit. So as of Acts chapter 1 and before the day of Pentecost, this hadn't happened. You're, in a few days, going to be baptized with the Spirit. This is still something to come in the future. And then to show unequivocally that this is the first time it happened. Remember I said in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and he gives the gospel and these these God-fearers are saved. And this causes a stir. In Acts chapter 11... There are people who come to Peter and say, what are you doing? Uh, these are these are uncircumcised people that you are giving the gospel to. And so the Jews aren't happy about this. 
And Acts chapter 11, Peter is called to account. He has to give an account of why he did this. And so you have Peter speaking in Acts 11, and when he and he gives his account, and when he comes to verses 15 and 16 of Acts 11, Acts 11, 15 and 16, he says that the Spirit came upon them just as he did on us. And then he uses this phrase, at the beginning. So they were baptized with the Spirit, and they spoke in tongues, just like happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and Peter refers to that as the beginning. So in Acts 1, Jesus said, that's going to happen in a few days. It was still yet to come. Peter says later, the beginning, and in between, you've got Acts chapter 2, the first time this happened. So, friends, in Acts chapter 2, you've got both of these things starting at the same time the Great Commission, and the church. Prior to Acts chapter 2, there was no church. In the Old Testament, Moses never belonged to a church. None of those guys belonged to a church. There was no church. Jesus says in Matthew 16 and verse 18 famously, I will build my church. And the Greek verb will is in the future. I will build my church. So this phenomenon of baptism of the Spirit is is what forms the church, happened for the first time in Acts 2, the Great Commission. Both of them start at the same time. Now, practically what that means for us, and this will be part of the Get a Life series that I'm doing, that means that the church is where the action is. If you want to get a life, then you've got to get with the church. Because the church is the vehicle through which the mission happens. They start at the same time, and not only that, as I documented on Sunday, they go to they go forward together. So in the outline Sunday, there should never be a churchless mission or a missionless church. They start at the same time, they go together, go forward together. So Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, is uh, of extreme significance. And that all teaches then something called the centrality of the church. Sometimes this is called, have you ever heard people refer to the period of time that we live in in biblical history as the church age? Have you ever heard of that? And that's actually a good, that's, that's a fine phrase. This is the age of the church. It is the church now through whom, through which God is carrying out his program. He carried out his program through Israel. He carried out his program through the law. He's had different ways of carrying out his program. But he's carrying out his program now through the church. So it's accurate to call this the church age. As a matter of fact, Um, I'll end I'll spend our remaining seven minutes going through uh, Ephesians chapter 3 with you to just further underscore the centrality of of the church that this is the church age Ephesians 3 so here's how Ephesians 3 goes Verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Uh, and then, if you if you're, if you have that open, you've got an NIV, after Gentiles, there's a dash. Because then verse 2, he sort of, he breaks his thought. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, and then for the sake of you Gentiles, and the next time, how do we know he's breaking his thought there? Why did the NIV translators have a dash after verse 1 before they start verse 2? Here's how. Because the next time you see that phrase, for this reason, is when you get down to verse 14. And it says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom 
his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So that's what he was starting to say, apparently. But as he's writing, he gets so excited about this thing called the church and the fact that the church is central to what God's doing, he breaks off for a bit and goes into this uh, rabbit trail, but a blessed rabbit trail it is. Because this is what he says. He breaks it off and in verse 2 says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now let me stop. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace. Now that word administration is a Greek word. It's oikonomos. And that's a long word, but it's a compound of two Greek words, oikos and namos. Now you might know what namos is, maybe. You know, if we say someone is an antinomian, that's somebody who's no law or against the law. Namos means law or rule. And oikos is yogurt, right? Right. <laughs> There's a yogurt called that. But the Greek word oikos means house. Oikonomos means house law or house order or house rule. And the idea is the world is God's house. And God orders it and rules it. The NIV translates that word administrates it different ways. Now in the King James Version that's surely you have heard about the dispensation rather than administration the dispensation of God's grace the word oikonomos is translated dispensation so that's another one of those things somebody might say are you a dispensationalist and my answer is what is my answer yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a bible word now again, if you want to ask me what I believe about the dispensations, that's another matter. But yeah. <laughs> so you could translate it administration, as the NIV does, or a dispensation, but it's house order, house rule. The way God, you know, I don't mean to be flippant, but the way God is rolling things at a particular time, in a particular period. And surely you've heard about the dispensation of God's grace that was given to me, Paul, for you. That is... The mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, he says. Now he says the mystery. That's a, a Greek word. Mysterion, it means something that was previously unknown. That has been made known. Something previously unknown that God has made known. And that mystery... In Colossians chapter 1, if you want to jot that down, this is Ephesians 3, but Colossians 1 and verses 24 and 25, he uses that and he says this mystery is that you Gentiles are included in the body, the church. So now it's not just the Jews, it's the Gentiles in this new thing called the body, something that's been made known, the church. And this was revealed to me, Paul, and in fact, down in verse 6 of Ephesians 3, he says this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You didn't have that before. You got it now. And you got it in the body. You got it in the church. Now, stay with me. We're almost done. Verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel... By the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me. And in the NIV, when it says this grace was given to me, there's a colon. So this grace was given to me, colon, here's what it was. Here's the grace that God gave to me. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
1. And, verse 9, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. Again, oikonomos, dispensation of this thing that had previously been unknown. God gave to me, Paul, the task of making to know, known to everybody this thing, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And now finally, verse 10. His, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you guys see that? His intent, God's intent, was that now. Through what? The church. The manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Yikes. I get to be part of that. Are you, so I'll be beating on that and get a life. But I get to, you get to be part of that. Part When I say the church is where the action is, I'm not blowing smoke, people. Paul says his intent was that now, through the church, this is what would happen. So on, in Acts chapter 2, you got the beginning of the mission, you got the beginning of the church. Start at the same time, they go forward together. And the rest of your New Testament shows you the, the centrality then of the church. Places like Ephesians chapter 3. All right. Well, hey, we made it three additional lines into page 17. We will make tracks next week as well.